our governments are imposing policies which are fundamentally bad for Canadians, but fundamentally or indirectly good for other entities. I don't want to be dramatic or hyperbolic. I think, politically speaking, it's Canada's last hope before Canada goes full Australia. Before we get into this show, I want to share with you the Z-Stack, a powerful immunity-building vitamin pack formulated by Dr. Zelenko, the founder of the Zelenko Protocol. Many of you may have seen my interview with Dr. Zelenko explaining how the combination of quercetin and vitamin C together is a powerful zinc ionophore gun which delivers zinc, the bullet, into the cell where the virus is. Zinc blocks the virus from getting into the cell. Quercetin and vitamin C together are a safe over-the-counter alternative to hydroxychloroquine. Access to this is needed when government restricts and bans effective treatments. Also, it has been established that high normal levels of vitamin D is important for warding off sickness and staying out of the hospital. With the dangers of the COVID shot, we need a strong immune system to keep from getting sick. The danger is getting sick. That's when the effects of the bioweapon shot takes over. The Z-Stack will provide you with a defensive weapon to fight a potential virus. You can see the studies and also buy yours today at the link below or at sarahwestall.com under shop. I also highly recommend C60 gel caps, daily zeolite detox, and my probiotic greens to maintain a healthy body, all of which you can get at my shop at sarahwestall.com under shop. Welcome to Business Game Changers. I'm Sarah Westall. I have David Freiheit coming to the program. He's running for prime minister in Canada against Justin Trudeau, but he's running for the People Party of Canada, and that party has exploded over the last year, and we're going to talk about that. They have a candidate running for every office for the federal government, and what that could do to Canada. I mean, basically, it's only been around for a couple years, and they're just exploding, but they're exploding in size because what the government is doing with all these crazy mandates. And he's worried that if they don't get an opposition voice into Parliament, that they're going to go the road of full-blown Australia. And I got to tell you, this matters to Americans. They are our northern border. What happens in Canada matters here because if they fall and they fall to the communist Chinese or the globalist power structure, that will affect us enormously, especially on the west coast immediately. And then to follow, you know, across the country, we'll have so much more pressure. So what happens there is very important. But I also have David Stay After, and we talk about the Native Americans. They have quite a bit of indigenous people up in Canada, and that government has been awful to the Native Americans. Not that the United States hasn't been, but they they put together a full-blown genocidal plan to rid the Native Americans of their culture and for people who have been following my channel and Kevin Annette, you know that those boarding schools they had, over 50% of those children died in those boarding schools for American Indians. And that's what they call them, American Indian schools. So they don't like to be called Indians. They like to be called Native Americans. But regardless, we talk about how the government interacts with them currently and how that needs to change. But I also have a very special program for, coming for my members with Louise McDonald, but everyone calls her Mama Bear, and she is the Bear Clan mother of the Mohawk Nation of Chiefs. And their nation is really unique in the sense that it has been run by women for over a thousand years. So in the spirit of my channel, having somebody come on with a very different perspective is so great because we get to learn a lot from her and how they think. She also has Fallen Jacobs, who comes on with her, who is someone that works with her on a regular basis. So we get to see her insight, too. But the other thing is that they live through genocide. They live through a powerful nation trying to rid the planet of their people. 
And I really think we have a lot to learn from that and their perspective, considering we're facing some of those same situations now where we are being attacked, you know, with these mandates and with these vaccines. And I mean, we really are approaching some some scary situations. And so what can we learn from them on that front as well? So that is a great conversation I have with them and with David's. So for members, you can see that at sarahwestall.tv or on Ebonier. And you can subscribe to both those channels at sarahwestall.com under subscribe. Now let's get into this really good conversation with David Freiheit. Hi, David. Welcome to the program. Good morning. I don't know when you're going to air this, but it's morning now, so good morning. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll probably go up within a day here because you have an election coming up very quickly on, was it Monday or Tuesday? It is Monday. We are expected to have some results by Tuesday, but they have forewarned us not to expect definitive results for a few days because we're getting mail-in ballots, not like you guys got in the States, but to the point where they may not be able to make definitive determinations for a few days. Okay. How do you know, I, now that you're bringing that up, because we are, <laughs> I'm almost, a, I'm not almost, I am a hundred percent convinced that our election was fixed on many, many levels, not just um, the president, president, but all the way down. I mean, it's, there's so much evidence, so much proof. How do you know that you won't be in that same situation? Well, so, okay. I, I believe Robert Barnes and I, when we do our weekly live streams, we were discussing it from the beginning. I believe some of those, some of the theories or some people's beliefs are down the wrong trail or down the wrong rabbit hole. I, I do believe everything I read in that article in Time Magazine, how they fortified the election and saved the, you know, the 2020 election. What, what should scare people more is not like vote flipping on, a, on an algorithm on a computer, but rather the, the legal means through which the manipulation process works. And that article detailed it. You know, you had people changing laws at the last minute, uh, litigating uh, resolutions to disputes, which facilitated certain electoral conduct. Um, but in Canada, look, our, our mail-in voting, and we do have mail-in voting, they did not get as much of it as they wanted. They were expecting, I think, 5 million mail-in ballots of, of uh, I forget how many people vote here overall, but they were expecting 5 million mail-in ballots. They only received 1 million, that is to say 1 million requests. And okay. the mail-in ballot system here is much more complicated than the States. Like you have to request it when you get it, you have to sign it and have it um, signed by basically before, not a witness even, but before a commissioner of the O's or with an affidavit, which costs money. So it is costly. It's more complicated. It requires identification left, right, and center. So I, I'm much less concerned about some of the fears. Uh, what, you know, what the realistic concern is you have a, a state-sponsored media running basically propaganda news for and against political parties, ignoring other parties, creating the narrative that they then use to convince people whom to vote for or who not to vote for. And that's how the actual manipulation works. It's not, it's not as simple as saying, okay, they're, they're going to you know, shred ballots or reproduce ballots or create ballots. It's, it's much more complicated and in that way much more sinister in that it's, a, it's an ecosystem that manipulates the intended results as opposed to actually being an independent reflection of the will of the voters? Well, I think it's all the above. Um, my, my background my, in my other life is I'm, I, was, I became the director of inter, you know, the systems development at Enterprise part of US West, which was the, um, we had 75% of the frame relay market, which was the internet. And I, at the time, um, was designing all data related and I was training Belcor engineers. And then I got promoted here and there. And so my background is data analysis. Okay. So I went through the raw data and the, the data that I had, and I saw votes being changed from, from a computer standpoint. So, and also, you know, there's other, I, and I talked to hundreds of people with my background who saw the same thing. So we know that's an avenue that they were using. And so, but I agree with you. I think they're using everything. And I don't think it's one side or the other side, but I got to tell you firsthand, I looked at that. I know they did it. Now, um, are they going to do it in your country? That's a big question. How much of your uh, ballot are electronic versus 
paper and it's it's a hundred it's a hundred percent paper in Canada oh, as, as far as I know I mean I, I've seen it and I went and so for anybody you know Canadians are worried and Canadians drop the term dominion a lot because they have seen and some people believe certain things occurred in the United States uh, it's paper ballot and two, two pieces of ID uh, with, uh, with a picture on it I mean I, I I suspect you can get in with a non-facial uh, ID, but I think most government-issued IDs now have a, a picture on it. Uh, you go in, you're on, you see the voter roll, they cross your name off, they uh, attribute your name to a number of the vote, which they keep on a different registry. You have a paper ballot, which goes into a box, you pull off a slip, which has a number on it. So, you know, th the issue could be, how do you know at the end of the day, they don't shred votes that they see go for certain parties? At the end of the day, there's only so much one can control within their own environment, but uh, it's a paper voting and it's meticulous to the well, point where that's different. It would be called all sorts of names in the United States to show two pieces of government ID. We know what Americans would, would say about that, or at least some Americans would say about such a system. Our system is so set up for fraud. And, and I, it's not a belief of mine that data was flipped. It's a fact. I, but we don't have all the raw, I haven't been able to see all the raw data to see how deep it was and how much it you know got to, but it's a fact that there were data, that well, was data switched. And, and I'll say, just to, just to cover my own tushy, I mean, I, one does not have to believe that it's a fact in order to know that the Democrats 10 years ago were sounding the alarm over everything they, everything they were saying was impossible yes. 10 years later. So, yes. so you don't need to know the facts just to know who yes. is arguing both sides of the facts when it was politically convenient to do so. And you can draw your own conclusions from there. Absolutely. Okay, well, let's get beyond this because this is, um, you know, let's establish that. So that's great. I mean, that's where we need to move to in the States. Okay, so now yeah. we're in a situation where we have these elected party leaders, if you will, that seem to be taking direction from a globalist group and telling them how, because uh, you, you know, Canada has been shut down. Everybody's been shut down and using the same language and, you know, the whole build back better and shutting down these vaccine passports. I mean, this is happening all over the world. So it looks like Justin Trudeau isn't even the leader of the country. He's taking some direction from a, a central source. How do you think that you will go in there? What will you do to say enough is enough? We're not, we're a free country. Oh, well, I'd say we were a free country and we have to make ourselves free again. And then here's, this is the thing, like some people frame it as though Justin Trudeau's taking orders from other people, whereas other people might say, and we're seeing the same, you know, the flip side of the same coin, whether he's taking instructions or whether he's just being influenced by ulterior motives or ulterior intentions, like whether or not Justin Trudeau says he's taking direct orders from Klaus Schwab, you know, people drop these names, or whether or not he's just saying, I want to have, a, I want to secure a position for myself on these global international communities, you know, I want on the Davos board. Sure, yeah. So whether or not it's taking instructions, whether or not it's being influenced by, you know, these these entities, which are unelected entities that are not national entities, um, the outcome is the same at the end of the day. It does seem that our governments are imposing policies which are fundamentally bad for Canadians, but fundamentally or indirectly good for other entities. And, um, you know, it doesn't help because our, our, our the premier of Quebec, it was in 2017, tweeted out, uh, in French, uh, je viens juste de lire Klaus Schwab. I just read Klaus Schwab's Fourth Industrial Revolution. And when, when you find out that Klaus Schwab is the founder of the World Economic Forum and their uh, influential, unelected global uh, entity that you know tries to influence politics and some politicians who want to be in their good graces can be influenced, corrupted, or directed, whatever, however you want to frame it, you see and you appreciate that you have a Canadian government that is actually not making decisions that are in the best interests of Canadians. They're cloaking their decisions as though they're in the best interests of Canadians, but they're fundamentally not. Um, and so what am I going to do? I mean, the reality is for anybody who knows Canadian politics, it's, uh, you know, we have a lot, it's not a two-party system, but it's effectively a two-party system because you have liberals, you have conservatives. Uh, on the liberal side, you then have NDP, New Democratic Party, which is a variation of liberals. You have the Green Party, which is sort of a, a, a further variation of liberals. You have the Bloc Québécois, which is a federal party that is based on the principle of separating Canada from the Federation. So it's an interesting party to have on a federal basis. The, the, the essence of the party is to separate from the Federation that they are a federal party for. And then you have the Conservatives. 
But at this point in time, so you, you can break them down largely left and right, but at this point in time, all of the parties agree on all of the basic principles uh, that are at issue today. Vaccine passports, uh, uh, carbon taxes, Paris Accord, uh, they all agree on these things. It's just a difference of degree in which they agree on them. And you have no opposition. How can they possibly uh, all agree on that? It's just it, incredible. It, it's incredible. And, and they, they agree on it only to a, 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 a question of degree. And there's no opposition in there to say, no, vaccine passports are unconstitutional. They're unscientific. They're oppressive. Nobody's saying that. It's just a question of how much vaccine passport. Nobody's in there saying carbon tax is illogical, it's unscientific, it's actually more damaging for the environment because all it does is cause uh, Canadians or Canadian companies to outsource their manufacturing to the Chinas and the Indias of the world. So you cripple the Canadian economy, you benefit manufacturing in China to the detriment of the environment that you're purportedly trying to save. Nobody's asking these questions. It's They all agree on foregone conclusions that give the government more control and harm Canadians and the Canadian economy more. And so what would I, if one member of the PPC, the People's Party of Canada, makes it in, and I think we're going to see more than one member make it in. There will be meaningful opposition in government. There will be a meaningful voice in the government to keep these measures, if not in check, because you know, even if there's six or at best, you know, a dozen PPC candidates who make it in, there's 338 members of parliament who are. Uh, it'll be 338 minus 12, but you know, the vast majority, almost all, are still going to be on the same boat but you're gonna have a voice in there that's going to raise some awareness and sensitize Canadians to what on earth is the government doing and what is the devastating impact it's having on Canada. Well, let's talk about the PPC and what that means. Um, what, how, how meaningful that party could be to Canada. Explain the party, explain how it's, it's really new. It's an exciting upstart, if you will, in Canada and what that means for people. It's. I'm not, I don't want to be dramatic or hyperbolic. I think politically speaking, it's Canada's last hope before Canada goes full Australia. Uh, People's Party of Canada was founded by someone named Maxime Bernier. Maxime Bernier, as we say in, in English, or as the Angles would say, he was a part of the Conservative Party for a long time. He lost a closely fought battle for the leadership of the party. And I think it was closely and potentially dirtily fought. Uh, and then after he lost the leadership uh, race, uh, he was not treated respectfully, from what I am told, from the Conservative Party in the positions that he was given. So I'm he sure. broke off. <laughs> yeah, I, this is, politics is a dirty, dirty, dirty business. Um, yes, it is. And so he, he, he broke off, started the People's Party, he says the Conservatives have lost their values, they've lost their principles, and we now can see this firsthand, uh, whether Good or not anyone him. denied it back in 2018, started the People's Party of Canada. And, you know, in the first election where it existed, it got 1.6% of the vote. Now, you know, we're polling at, depending on who you ask, when you ask, upwards of 12%. So one poll had the PPC at 10 to 12% of the national vote. There is a groundswell grassroots movement. I mean, everybody can see it. Uh, I just, I, and I think it's there. I don't think I'm living in a, in a political silo because I went door to door in Westmount, uh, which is, it's been a liberal stronghold for 30 years. And the amount of people who said they're fed up with the Trudeau government and will vote for anyone else, including the PPC, and the amount of people who, who quietly say, we support the PPC, but it's politically or, you know, it's, it's not um, popular to say it out loud. Sure. I've seen the amount of people, and, and it's more than one in 10. There's no question. So yeah, the party That's started great. that, and we're, we're, it's, it's great. It's great. And we're going to get some seats in. I know we are, because nationally, it has, it's gotten awareness. Out West, it's surging to the point where it's competing with the conservatives. And so we're gonna get seats in, there's gonna be meaningful uh, um, opposition, but the party itself, very logical, smaller government in general, uh, tighter immigration and use immigration for the benefit of Canada and not to exploit cheap labor, which is how immigration is used in a great many places. And for the people who call the party anti-immigrant or racist because of that policy, it's ironic because using immigration as cheap labor I would argue is racist itself. And so it's, it's the irony of making the accusations that are true of yourself. Um, what else? No vaccine passport, period. No lockdowns. These are not legitimate forms of Democrat government, democratic government, I should say. Or a classical liberal. A classical liberal believes in everything that you're talking about. I don't know about immigration, but when it comes to immigration, what we're seeing is a complete, I mean, people are saying our border has collapsed. 
here in the United States. But yours is what what we're learning and what I've been, you know, I've had guests and everything else. The majority of those people coming over are being trafficked. And so if you're not paying attention to the immigration and and guarding it and being careful, you have a situation where not only is it racist because you're bringing in uh, people at the lowest economic scale and abusing them, you're also trafficking them and you're not paying attention to that. And so when you have like upwards, I'm hearing 70%. I'm hearing kids being raped. Talk about racist. It's, 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 uh, I believe 80% of women crossing the border from the South to the States are sexually assaulted at one point during that journey. Um, and it's, it's shocking and it's atrocious. And the, 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 the racist. human trafficking side. No, well, it's, beyond it, 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 belief. It's, it's, it's not even just racist. It's, it's anti-human. It's, no, it's, it's, it's immoral. And, and then you have you know, then they mock Trump for talking about coyotes and they, haha, it's funny. You, you, you make a meme out of, out of what he said while actually allowing people to suffer and die because of the encouragement you're giving them. We don't have that same problem in Canada, although we have a, you have some you know, on, on a lesser degree, some, some, um, you know, some people coming from what they call Roxbury road coming through who come through the States because they don't want to stay in the States. And, but, uh, and on your reservations, there's always issues on reservations across well, the, 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 the entire the, North the, America. The, the, the way the Canadian government has dealt with the indigenous population while saying we're a rich country, we can take in 400,000 immigrants, new immigrants a year, when our indigenous populations, many of them don't have clean drinking water on their, on their reserves. I mean, it's, it's such an insult to Canadian citizens who are suffering to say we're a rich country. Well, tell that to the one in five kids who lives in poverty and doesn't have enough to eat. In my area, St. Michel, just down the, close to Montreal, one in three kids are living off one meal a day. When they come home from school on the weekends, the school has to give them a bag of food. And so, yeah, we're a rich country when indigenous people don't have uh, clean drinking water. When one, you know, when our kids are one in five are hungry and, and uh, living in poverty. But yeah, let's let's take more people in and simultaneously neglect the ones we have, the citizens and residents that we have. Uh, but it makes us feel good and it makes us look good uh, on an international scale while neglecting our population. Yeah, and feeling good is ridiculous. I mean, you have to act good. And that's the difference. Now, we have transcended normal conservative liberal policies, I believe. And now we're talking about just what's moral and right. And I think that's why so many people from um, classical liberals are leaving the Democrats in our country in hordes. And I believe it's the same thing in Canada. You guys might be farther along in that curve because Canada is closer to Australia. Now, why are you guys so much more affected? It seems, you know, with the Commonwealth and being tied to to England and to the crown. I saw Justin Trudeau when he got sworn in, he talked his allegiance to the crown, to the queen. Now, what is that? And how are you going to make sure that you don't, that you Canada comes first, not some place over the ocean the the allegiance to the crown is is uh symbolic i mean i I think it's more fundamental uh of a question of culture that canadians are you know are are citizens and not uh subjects of the of the of the state and not free citizens you know we we have a constitution but they're now we know privileges bestowed to us by a government that can take them away at at their sole discretion if they deem it to be justifiable in a free and democratic society Whereas in the States, Americans fought and died for their independence, and they are God-given rights that only God can give and only God can take away and not government. And Americans have a culture, and I've grown to appreciate it now over the years of my channel, where they defend vigorously those rights. And whereas Well, in you Canada, guys learned the hard way, right? You learned the hard well, I mean, way we're, we're, we're what le- our, that difference is. Go ahead. Well, we're, we're learning the hard way, but it seems that a lot of people don't care. You know, it, to the extent the government says it's for their protection and convinces them that they're in fact safer, even if they're actually not, even if it were to make them safer, you, you give up your freedom for safety, it's not going to last very long. But in reality, what they're doing is not actually making anybody any safer. They've just traumatized the Canadian population into being into a, a perpetual state of fear and panic that they are prepared to surrender everything for the, for the feeling of security. Um, but, you know, the, the measures are not even actually making Canadians safer, but it makes them feel that they're safer. And the fact that, you know, the government has a, a, a media that has been bought and paid for promoting this fear porn day in and day out. It's a vicious circle, but uh, Canadians have a bit of a different uh, fundamental attitude towards freedoms and restrictions than Americans. And it can, you know, it leads to the two extremes. But there's a lot of people in the States who are also prepared 
to give it all up if the government says uh, it'll make him safer. <laughs> lock me in, lock me in my house if it's going to protect me from a virus, even if locking me in the house doesn't actually protect me from any virus and actually only makes me more susceptible to stuff. Well, and in the States, we have uh, people, and I saw this in Canada too, where they were actually quarantining their own children in their own bedrooms because they were told to. It's, and I, I was shocked when I saw mothers doing things like that. And, and for a country to promote those kinds of behaviors, again, is immoral. I mean, what kind of trauma are you instilling in these children? It's, I'm not, I've been accused of, of exaggerating. It is government sanctioned child abuse. There's no time in the history of humanity where locking a kid in a room for two weeks, slipping the kid food through a crack in the door, but at least, you know, the kid has an iPad. There's no world where that would have been anything but child abuse until the government says, now we, we've issued an emergency health order to do it. And I thought it was a joke when I heard it. This came out of Ontario. No, I thought it was a joke. And then I, Or tweets. propaganda or some kind of fake news. Well, I, thought, I, thought of, I thought it was a misinformation, like a meme that people are like, oh no, there's no way the government could have possibly said that. And even still, there's no way any responsible parent with half a brain would have ever done it. But you get parents so whipped up into a frenzy that even if they're 40 to 50, reasonably healthy, they think that if their kid gives them COVID, they're going to drop dead in a second. I mean, first of all, being a parent means making sacrifices and it means taking risks, even if that risk is contracting COVID, treat, you know, dealing with your kid so that you don't put your kid in the bedroom for two weeks. You don't traumatize your child. It's like when my son got lice, which was awful. He was two and I was mortified because he got it from a, um, I had learned that the kids with cleaner hair actually are more, lice are more attracted to. So just nice. so everybody knows that. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't for a second worry about my son's head next to mine, even though that I it's, knew what that meant. It's, but you know, someone will say, okay, lice can't kill you, but you know, everything. Well, exactly. There's, there's risks to everything. We know the demographics. We know the risks that any parent would actually say, I'm so scared of contracting. I, I decided to become a parent. And I'm so more interested in preserving my own infinitesimally low risk of dying from COVID that I'm going to lock my kid up in a room for two weeks. You shouldn't have had kids. I mean, that, that's, that's a, that is actually abusing the kid for your own well-being, which is, it's unconscionable. I mean, my kids get sick. It, it, I'm playing Russian roulette with a virus every time the kids get sick. And until I, you know, we, we know if you have to get tested until you know it's not COVID. But they, parents but actually still. did it. And then you read tweets. You read tweets on Twitter. Whether or not they're real, I, I, I convince myself they are mean trolls, but parents saying, it breaks my heart hearing my kids sobbing through the closed bedroom because of this day three of isolation. I was like, <laughs> it broke your heart, but you, it, it broke your brain a little while ago that you actually ever put your kid in that position. Well, but we're also doing the same thing. I say, I say, I say that, actually. Go ahead. I, I should attenuate that. I say that with understanding for the irrational level of fear that people are living in. But this is, a, this is a problem that has been created by the environment. They need to be you know, talked out of this, not encouraged into it. Well, and let's talk about it a little bit farther because the kids being forced to put masks on and social distance in school when they're five, six, seven, eight years old has been proven to be psychologically damaging and traumatic for these children when they don't have, they're not at risk. I mean, they're period, they're just not at risk. It's the same thing. Why would you put your child through that? I don't care if they put me at risk by I don't, my child is not going to go through trauma so that adults, grandma who has 15 grand, my grandma, my kid's grandma would never, I don't care if my life is at risk. My children, my grandchildren are not going to be traumatized all day long in school. It's just so, and everybody appreciates the risk for children is infinitesimal. We had 300,000 cases of 19 and under in Canada. There were 1,586 hospitalizations, 15 deaths. That is lower than the standard flu for kids. So at first the argument was you got to protect the kids because they're vectors for adults. I'm not sure that that ever panned out scientifically. Now the argument is you got to, you got to vaccinate the adults to protect the kids at this infinitesimal risk. And but, I mean, I, I, I've seen the studies. My wife is a neuroscientist, and we, we, we look through and discuss these studies about development in children. Uh, there's issues. I know people talk about respiratory issues uh, for older kids. But the idea that you are effectively destroying children's childhoods um, 
under the pretext of protecting them from a virus which poses infinitesimally low risk to them, but the media runs with every story that they can find to build it into the narrative. Uh, I mean, it's, it's unconscionable and there will be a generation of kids who are gonna suffer the consequences, physical and psychological, and the adults who did this to them in a generation's time are gonna have some explaining to do. But Absolutely. You, you find the media that runs the story of the healthy 16 year old who gets double pneumonia in both lungs, COVID pneumonia in both lungs, uh, despite following all of the health measures. And then you see the picture in the article of this healthy 16 year old who is morbidly obese by the article itself has sleep apnea. Her mother has diabetes, which can lead you to think that she might have diabetes. And the healthy lifestyle that she was living was she hadn't left her house very much in a year and a half, was masked up all the time and constantly disinfecting. And now you're seeing the articles coming out of Florida that the ICUs are not the ICU, sorry, the pediatric wards are filled to the brim with kids, but not because of COVID, but because they're not able to deal with other viruses that were seasonal viruses at the time because they've been living in a bubble for the last year and a half. Or the mental anguish, we're seeing the mental problems soar. And so that's another it's, thing that we're seeing in hospitals. Okay, so I'm so glad you're on that page. Now let's talk about the media because the media is bought and paid for. And you know, I'm still seeing our politicians afraid to talk to independent journalists who aren't paid, bought and paid for, who are doing true, I mean, the, the people have moved to independent journalism. The people, our numbers are way better than the controlled media. We just know that independent journalists are more respected. They're getting more numbers. Um, they're trying to censor us every way they can. And people are still, my numbers are still growing. In your country, has the politicians started to break away from that controlled media base and start talking to these independent journalists who are actually journalists? It's, or are you still seeing this tied group, which is ridiculous? It's going to blow you away. I mean, I know you say your media is bought and paid for, but in Canada, they're literally bought and paid for. So the CBC and Radio Canada, which are state-run uh, uh, corporate corporate uh, corporate companies basically no sorry Ugh, what's the word they're uh, crown corporations is the word I'm looking for CBC Radio Canada are subsidized to the tune of one billion dollars a year by the federal liberal government uh, Justin Trudeau it was a few years ago 2018 promised a bailout he gave a bailout package of 600 million dollars to the ailing media industry 600 million dollars and it went to something like thousands of uh, media organizations who effectively now, you know, do the bidding of the government because you don't want to lose those subsidies. They're running COVID ads left, right, and center on traditional media, which is another source of revenue coming from the government to ensure that the media, you know, remains compliant. And you, so we're, it's bought and paid for here, but literally. And then at the same time, the CBC, which is so strapped for cash, it needs a billion dollars a year from the government, taxpayer, my taxpayer dollars in order to continue to exist, finds the money to sue the Conservative Party in the last federal election for alleged copyright infringement because the Conservative <laughs> Party used CBC soundbites as political messaging and the CBC sued them, took our taxpayer dollars because they're so strapped for cash, found enough money to sue them, lost big time the way they should have before the federal court. Uh, and that's, that's the media in Canada. And what does Justin Trudeau do? I, I don't know if you've seen the clip because it's the most glorious and disqualifying act of a leader of any country he was asked a direct question from Rebel Media, which is, you know, one of the few independent media outlets in Canada. Yep. Uh, Alexandre Lavoie asked him a question and said, uh, you demonized our radio station, uh, you demonized our media the other day, called us, you know, misinformation, yada, yada. Uh, I've got a question for you now. The vaccine passport that you want to implement, are you going to go the Israeli route and say that after two vaccines, you may not be uh, compliant, you may have to get a, a third and a fourth booster like in Israel? or will the vaccine passport stop at two shots? Justin Trudeau says, I've said I've everything I have to say about your media outlet, nothing else. And then turns his head away like the most arrogant, pompous ruler on earth. How dare he be challenged by these lowly media outlets? And he didn't answer the question. So he, they, they literally, the conservatives literally run from independent media. Trudeau literally says, I'm not answering your questions. Jagmeet Singh, the leader from the NDP, same thing. I'm not taking questions from Rebel News. I'm only going to take questions from the state-sponsored media. Um, and it's, it's atrocious. I mean, it, it really is just atrocious. Well, you guys are worse when your 
own tax money is being used to manipulate and <laughs> bribe, or I don't know, well, bribe, that's bribing, and doing propaganda against yourself to take away your freedoms and everything else. I mean, you that's what you guys are they paying our, to do. They, they took our taxpayer dollars and then used it to sue one of the political parties who, there were conservatives whose taxpayer dollars went to the CBC so the CBC could sue their conservative party. I mean, it's, 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 it's backwards. Here, here's it's money, sue me. Yeah, no, no. And by the way, it's one step worse than that. When uh, you know the liberals are seeing that despite all of this, nobody's watching the CBC, nobody's watching legacy media. They're going to the independent creators on YouTube. What does the government do? They wanted to put into effect this, what they call the Bill C-10, which was an act to amend the Canada's Broadcasting Act to allow it to govern online uh, content. So they basically wanted to subject independent creators on YouTube to the same regulations that apply to television and radio under the pretext of, uh, what, what was it? Protecting Canadian culture. And they said at first, it was not going to apply to independent content creators. There was an exclusion in the law that the liberals in the dead of night removed from the draft law and then wanted to push it through. And when challenged on why they removed the exclusion of the application of this law to independent creators, they said, uh, the guy's name is Gilbo, the Minister of Heritage. He says, it was unnecessary to include it in there because we don't want to target independent creators. Oh, so please. it was unnecessary. And then they said, well, if it was unnecessary, why'd you include it? And then why'd you remove it? And then sure as sugar, about a couple of weeks later, they say, yeah, well, it, you know, if you're a big enough online creator and you act like a broadcast, it could apply to you. I mean, so they, they want to now, through legislation, after having bought off all the media, suppress and silence the independent media that has found a voice on, on the internet through their own uh, talent, through their own skill, and through the accuracy of the information they're putting out there. Because they, they've already tried to protect and buy off the media, which they've done, but they don't have full control over the internet. And that's what they were attempting to do with this law under the pretext that it was to protect Canadian culture. Okay, so what happened to that law? Did it pass? It did, it, well, so it passed, uh, the, it passed the House, it didn't pass the Senate, and then they called an election. So that law, Bill C-10, is effectively dead now. We'll see which government wins in what proportions after the election to see if they revive that law. But luckily, it, it had a lot of pushback from a lot of people, myself included, and some, and the, some conservatives, but not all. The conservatives at one point, Aaron O'Toole, said, if elected, we will repeal Bill C-10. And I tweeted, I was like, dude, it hasn't passed yet. Instead of promising what you're going to do after it passes, how about you just fight its passage right now? And it looked like he was going to have more opposition in the Senate than, um, than it did in the House to get through. But it's dead, it's dead in the water now. So we'll see where, what happens after the election. Well, and you, I want to talk about the term conservative, because I think conservative has, you know, it's about conserving your way of life. And I think classical liberals and all of us, whether you're a classical liberal, whether you're a conservative, whether you're, you just like to be free at this point. It's all a conserving your way of life. I think it's whether you want to go back to before the Magna Carta, where you have no, uh, you don't own property, you don't own anything, but you'll be happy. Or do you want to conserve our advances that we've made in society? So I think right now, you know, later on, maybe we can go back to some conservative classical liberal debates. But right now, conserving our way of life is a big, huge umbrella that includes everyone who wants to maintain the advances we've made after the Magna Carta. Would you agree with that? Because I don't want to, and I'm going to be, I don't want to uh, alienate all these classical liberals that are like, wait a minute, I want to conserve our freedom and our way of life after the Magna Carta too. I wouldn't, I, so I wouldn't frame it as wanting to conserve what you had, because that sort of sounds like the grumpy old, you know, couple sure. sitting on their porch Good. with a shotgun okay. saying, get off my lawn type thing. Um, no, but I, and I would say it's not a question of conserving what you had. It's a question of preserving the principles that allowed your country to flourish in the first place. Canada, the United States, England, you know, the, the principles that allowed these countries to be the beacon of uh, freedom throughout the world uh, are immutable principles. And it's when you start compromising those principles that it's not that you are no longer conserving the past. It's that you're destroying the future and you're destroying, you're destroying the very principles that allowed that country to flourish in the first place. And that's what we're seeing in Canada. Excellent. And, we, and that's what we see in other countries where, you know, you start stifling the very freedoms that made the country great and they eventually collapse. Um, and so, I mean, that's it. I wouldn't say conserving because 
it's it's everything's always in flux and the principles freedom of speech freedom of conscience they allow for evolution at all stages and it's actually you only make a country stagnant when you start stifling those very freedoms that made it great in the first place well and that's why i want to say because a lot of people are going toward they call themselves conservatives i'm like well i i like your definition a heck of a lot better because this is a huge umbrella for everyone who who wants to maintain those freedoms and those principles like you were saying and we do not want to alienate and say no this is just for republicans in our country for example or for conservatives that makes no sense the fight that we're having is this is a huge umbrella i i, I said it to maxime bernier and i say I, I don't consider myself a conservative because i don't know what it means on the one hand i know that i espouse beliefs which are traditionally liberal beliefs you know like i I can think of a few examples. I, I think it's a very good idea to require people to take a firearm safety course before acquiring firearms. Now, the issue about registration, and that's another issue, and you know whether or not people should be allowed to own whatever firearms they want. I, I have a more, uh, I have some liberal aspects to that uh, position and some conservative aspects to that position. I, you know, when it comes to gay marriage, these are no brainers for me. But then when it comes to transgender athletes competing in sports of the biologically opposed uh, gender, Am I conservative because I think that that trumping on women's rights is uh, is a problem? And does that make me conservative or does that actually make me uh, logical and still respect the very principles that bestowed rights on women in the first place? So I don't know how to reconcile all these things. I just don't give myself the label of a conservative. And I told the party, like, you have to let me. I think the party appreciates that the party itself is not more conservative than the conservatives, despite what the media says. They are more classical, liberal, libertarian, libertarian. Um, but above all else, you know, respecting individual rights, respecting individual choice, thinking that individuals are smart enough and capable enough to run their own lives without Justin Trudeau literally saying it's his responsibility to keep me safe, not just during the pandemic, but afterwards. I mean, when they say that, what they're basically saying is they think they're my father and they're not. And they're not, they're not my parents. They're not my kids' parents. They never were. They never should be. And as far as I can, if I can have my way, they will never be able to be the parents, despite the fact that they are now effectively compelling parents to vaccinate their 13-year-old kids if they want those kids to be able to play sports in high school. And it's, oh God. it's an okay. ever-encroaching element of government. Well, how about the fact that boys, teenage boys now, they've they've proven through studies that they're six times more at risk to having heart complications than having COVID. And well, so, now yeah, yeah, they're the mandating. The study, Go ahead. Yeah, the, the, the study was that uh, for teenage boys were six times more likely to be hospitalized uh, from the vaccine than from COVID. I mean, I... I know that there's a there's two arguments to that hospitalized the heart. Well, okay, go ahead. I because no, it's it's, I mean, I I read the articles and I read the caveats. They say, yeah, they're they're, the the teenage boys are more are six times more likely, apparently, to be hospitalized from myocarditis, heart inflammation than from COVID. But we we know what we know what the hospitalization rates are for 19 and under in Canada, 300,000 hospitalizations, uh, sorry, 300,000 infections. 1500 hospitalizations that's 0.05 percent so i mean yeah you're dealing with virtually zero so anything that is added risk will probably be create more risk than COVID itself for hospitalization but it's just the idea that the government is saying on the one hand we have a vaccine that is safe and effective yet um it's not effective for those who took it to the point where you need to now compel children to take this where there is there has not been the required period yeah, to prove long-term safety. Efficacy is, you know, is a secondary issue. I'm more interested. I don't care if it's useless. I care if it's harmful. And for me, look, I've had my kids. Uh, I think I have a strong heart. I had shingles. I didn't get a relapse. Like, you know, some, some, all vaccines can trigger a relapse of shingles. So for me, I'll, you know, I'll take my risk and I'll make my calculations. But when it comes to my kids, it's not going to be the government that's going to be using their civil rights and liberties and their God-given right to a normal, free childhood as the what they call it an incentive and i call it as coercion it's like it's like a don carleone incentive you know here's a gun i'm going to incentivize you to give me your money i mean that's that's not exactly how it works so i'll make the decisions for my kids if the vaccine is safe and effective those who are double vaccinated should be happy they made the decision and then not feel compelled to coerce a decision on others well how about the sex change operations which is one big money-making operation uh, on children 
who haven't, I mean, they're, you know, even kids, you know, 16 year olds who aren't done with puberty on children who aren't old enough to know whether they are okay with their body or not. They might be a female or a male inside and their body might not match, but wait, it, really, we're going to do this before we, they're done going through puberty and they, it's messing up their bodies. I, and so they, they, the people's, the argument is that we're homophobic or racist or all these other things. Big but, transphobe, I think is, is yeah, the, is well, the whatever word. And, but they don't look at the greedy market behind that and how much money they make on it and whether this long-term is what these people will want once they're adults. The, the, the idea, look, uh, this is, it's always, this one's a touchy subject also because, you know, people, I would say that the, a very vocal minority are very vocal, but the idea, and I've said it a number of times in Canada, and it's the same in the States, you have age limits on tattoos, drinking alcohol, smoking, things that, things that impact your body. You can make these decisions when you reach the age of majority, where whatever that is in whatever jurisdiction, but there's a reason why they limit what uh, minors can do to their bodies, even with parental consent sometimes. Um, but the idea now that despite, you know, no tattoo until you're 18, but you can take a hormone blocking therapy. Th the issue becomes the bad, it's, it's a principle of law. Bad cases make bad law. And you have the one outlier exceptional circumstance where the most extreme case in the world, and then that becomes the new standard for everyone else. Uh, you know, th this is, these are deeply personal issues of family. And when they become politicized, and when you have politicians exploiting them and exploiting the, 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 the crises that these children might be going through, I mean, it, it, it dirties the entire uh, discussion. And when money comes into play, you know, money corrupts pretty much everything. But yep. these issues, violent, they're, they're, very, they're family issues. And they're discussions that have to be had with the family. But when it comes to you know, life-altering um, decisions that will impact the child, for the government to say the parent, the parent no longer has parental consent uh, or parental control, I mean, that is, again, the government effectively uh, taking control over children from their parents. Uh, but uh, on the substance of it, the, the idea that a 12-year-old, and some of them are very young, can, you know, cannot get a tattoo, cannot drink alcohol, can't smoke, but can make a decision to block their hormones, which is not an easily reversible decision, if reversible at all, because it has lasting consequences. Yes. Uh, th there's some, there's some uh, motivated reasoning going on to find a justification for one, uh, but to find the exclusion for the other. Well, and we're opening up for a whole group of people to be exploited. And isn't that, you know, exploitation should not be in our, <laughs> the way we manage a healthy society. Well, I think, you know, everything is a case by case and the ex most extreme examples should not become the new standard, but these are, you know, by and large as a rule, yes, kids, childhood is not easy. Uh, and if the, the, the argument is that if they, you know, in certain extreme cases, if they don't go through the transition therapy, they're going to try to take their own lives. They're going to have all sorts of psychological issues. Okay, that's fair. And, and uh, we there see, might but, be. On the one hand, well, but, but on the one hand, I mean, that might be true, but we now know also on an, in a meaningful way that a lot of people who have gone through it have had, have nonetheless still continued to have the psychological trauma yes. and also the regret of the decision that they made and the feeling that they were in fact exploited by not potentially the adults yeah. in their lives, depending on the family dynamic and the government and the doctors who this has now become the political flavor of the day to exploit for political purposes. And the pawns in this political battle are the children who suffer the consequences. Yeah. Are they truly happy? And are, were you targeting the right mental anguish that they were having? Maybe it wasn't about their body. Maybe that's what you think it is, but their anguish really is something else. And now well, you're... They're now they're giving them a double whopper where they still have the anguish they always had. Now they're dealing with the fact that their bodies changed. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was you know the DSM five. Uh, whether or not you agree that it should be as thick as it is, th these are recognized um, conditions. I, I, I get mixed up between gender dysphoria and gender dysmorphia, but these are recognized conditions. The question becomes, what's the most appropriate treatment uh, it, that is in the best interest of the kid uh, and is permanent. Uh, alteration of the body uh, for, is that the best decision? And is that even the moral decision? And it, it's like, I know what I believe. I, I know what other people believe. 
the idea, however, that uh, you know you get called a transphobe, bigot, whatever, because you think that maybe you should not make permanent body-altering decisions for a developing mind who is going through issues. If that makes you a bigot, I mean, we're not using words properly anymore. Uh, and if, yeah. if believing that makes you a transphobe, well, then we're then we're not trying to, we're not trying to understand or look for a solution. You're trying to demonize so that you can continue, in my mind, to politically exploit exploit children for political purposes. Absolutely, thank you. That's that's really a good way of saying all this. Let's talk about economics because, you know, we we're hearing the build back better, and a lot of that is economical, you know, economic situations. But they forced a lot of these small businesses out of business. So what are we building back? Why were we having to build back better in the first place? You created I, the build back better issue. I'm listening to Justin Trudeau talk about fixing, and he called it a she session. It, he called it a she session because in their mind, it has affected more women than men. Setting that uh, statistic or arguable statistic aside, I think it's affected everyone. And I think that to say that there are some people who we're all victims, but some victims are more victims than others. I think that is politically divisive rhetoric. He called it a she session. We need to get into a she covery and really? talks about. Uh, it's, I didn't even hear him say that, but go ahead. Go, go Google it. You will. In fact, Thank I tweeted God it. they're it's, not doing it, it here because that would be it, awful. Well, you're not yet, but you're not talking yet. about. Uh, birthing, it could happen. In, in the States, you're talking about birthing people and not women, which is as, oh, well. as far as I'm concerned, just as much of a bastardization <laughs> of language, but. That might be worse. Go ahead. It, no, but that, that, that is worse. That denies womanhood. I mean, that, that denies what the women's rights that they were fighting for for a hundred years. Stupid. Sorry, sidetrack. It's stupid. That, now, okay, that is the dumbest. If you have any basic <laughs> common sense, I mean, we just sit back and laugh and wonder if we're watching a clown show. You know, it's just it's oh, like I, my, I, my husband and I just look at each other and shake our head. I listened to Justin Trudeau say she session. I thought it was a deep fake. I said, there's no way a politician talks like this. So <laughs> setting aside the absolute idiotic rhetoric that he's creating, he created the recession. They talk about people having lost their jobs because of COVID. They didn't lose their jobs. Their jobs were stolen by the government who decided that they had the arbitrary right to shut them down, the ones that were non-essential. Uh, the, the government stole their jobs. The government put them out of business. And now the government's saying, we're here to help. I mean, I, I made the analogy, the government's pr promising six and a half billion dollars, uh, or sorry, four and a half billion dollars to deal with uh, the me this mental decline of mental issues of, of Canadians. And I said, you promising four and a half billion dollars to treat the mental anguish that you caused is like the mobster paying for your crutches after they break your kneecaps. And that's exactly what they're doing. They created this. And now they're promising to build back better. And they created it in the absence of any scientific or even justifiable reason to do so, we knew relatively early on who the risky uh, demographics were in this virus. Yes. And instead of, instead of letting the not vulnerable continue to maintain the infrastructure that a country needs, they shut everyone down. They put everyone out of work. They created weaknesses, exacerbated weaknesses in the long-term healthcare facilities by creating a shortage of staff which caused the cycling of staff from one facility to the next, infected staff who then spread from one facility to the next and it, it killed more elderly in those facilities that otherwise might have occurred. Absolutely. And not just that, they said for every two elderly people in long-term care that died from COVID, one died from neglect, malnourishment. And so, you know, they, 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 they flattened the curve all right. They flattened the country now to say that we're going to build back better. They were the problem and they, can't, and they, they will not be the solution. Uh, but they've convinced people they are. I mean, that's 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 the beauty of being the government, owning the media, and pushing the message. How can you trust a government that created that debacle to fix anything? I mean, first of all, nobody should. I'm not a uh, an anarchist, but everyone should appreciate. Not government. No, government in general. I'm not saying question the government. I'm not saying a government. I'm not anarchy. I'm saying how can you trust the government that's in place now? The people who are in place now who created this problem to fix the problem. That's what I'm saying. They, cre not they created the problem, exacerbated the problem. I was gonna say, Justin Trudeau in February, 2020, donated 16 tons of PPE, Canadian PPE to China. The government knew what was coming, the people didn't. And the government donated our PPE to China and left our long-term care facilities under-equipped, in fact, not, not equipped for some in some cases, as the pandemic hit, and their argument, it was going to expire anyhow. So we, you know, we did it for the the, the benefit of the of the global community. And I'm thinking, 
maybe an expired face mask is better than no face mask. They exacerbate the problem. They were wrong pretty much at every step of the way, wrong on the two weeks in terms of what, you know, in terms of what they said and then what they turned into, wrong on masks not going to be mandated by the government, wrong on vaccine passports. Not, we're not a country that makes vaccination mandatory. Out of Trudeau's mouth, six months later, I believe vaccines should be mandatory. They've been wrong every step of the way. And now they're saying, just if we just get the remaining 18%, 20% of the population who are not fully vaccinated, vaccinated, we'll get through this. Setting, knowing, in my mind, in my personal belief, knowing that one way or the other, it's not going to have the desired, uh, it's not going to have the predicted outcome so that when the predicted outcome doesn't occur, they can at least pin the blame on the unvaccinated and not on the fact that they were again wrong at this step of the, uh, step of the, uh, step of the process. Yes. Yeah, so don't you think those people who are making those decisions, their policy decisions, their decisions on everything they're doing is creating the problem that we're in. You really think they're the ones that should be fixing it? Well, maybe yeah. they should be morally, they should fix their own crap, but I mean, are they, do they have it, the abilities? If, Go ahead. If they were not worth, if they, if these politicians, some of them are worth millions and the ones who are not worth millions still are still getting their salary, haven't missed a paycheck. The chief medical officers of the provinces, the, uh, I think I call her the chief medical officer of Ontario is paid $350,000 a year, give or take. If these people had their paychecks suspended and dropped to $2,000 government, what is it, a pittance? If they, if they had their livelihoods shut down and only got 2,000 bucks a month that they would have to pay tax on at the end of the year, they would have found a solution real quick. These, these politicians have no skin in the game. They don't suffer the consequences of their own actions while they're locking everyone else down. Justin Trudeau is breaking the rules to have an Easter family dinner with his family. Um, uh, there's a, a politician out of uh, Quebec traveling to the Barbados. There was a liberal politician out of Ontario who pre-recorded a video that he, pre that he posted on Twitter telling everyone to celebrate Christmas differently this year, that we're going to have to celebrate it differently this year. He was in front of his fireplace. He pre-recorded that video and posted it while he was in St. Bart's Island. You have all of these politicians living by a different set of rules, not the rules that they were imposing on others, and not suffering the slightest financial or social consequence as a result of what they're doing it's like, I don't want to use hyperbolic language. It is negligent at best and much worse at worst. Okay. Let's, I totally agree. Let's talk about economics deeper from the central banker standpoint. Okay. They're talking about wanting to do, this is from their own language. They're talking about wanting to go to a global digital currency. They're talking about, I know that at Jackson Hole, Wyoming, where they have the annual center central bankers meeting, they're talking about um, going around governments and establishing budgets for governments. And they're talking about carbon credits um, so they can decide what manufacturers get to do well and not do well. Um, that's, that's pretty much a banker's dictatorship. Now, what do you think about, I mean, how are you gonna combat that? First of all, what do you think of that? And how are you gonna combat that? And we can't, we can't ignore that the world is changing and we're becoming a, more of a digital society but how do you deal with that not go ahead take it from here i think you know I, what i'm asking I, I i think the answer is i don't know i mean the on the one hand they want to regulate all transfers of i think now in the states it's like under, under uh, over 600 dollars um they want they are going to try to regulate cryptocurrency i still have I, I still hit a wall in terms of my understanding of the benefit of cryptocurrency when you don't have adequate markets to actually use it like currency and when at the end of the day it has to be converted to cash in order to be used so I, I know the limitations of my own understanding, and I've had discussions about cryptocurrency. I still don't understand. I don't understand it in a way that makes me feel comfortable to talk about it. But as far as, as, far as the rest goes, I mean, it's, it's, they want to basically regulate every aspect of citizen life, and it's, there, there's no end to it. From, from the economic perspective, these are issues. My, my greater concern, immediate concern right now, is hyperinflation. It's devaluing the dollar because of the debt that we're incurring in Canada. Um, and you know, printing money, and as we're in this, we're in this state in Canada, and you know, I, I participated in the candidates' debates, and they're still just talking about spending more, federal government coming in and giving money for all sorts of programs. Like, you're going to spend yourself into bankruptcy, and you're going to cripple your children. With right now, it's like thirty thousand dollars of debt for every living Canadian, and I mean, I'm more concerned about that. It's like. 
Well, the head of the World Bank and IMF are telling people spend, spend, spend. They were telling people to spend their way out of this situation that they created. (laughs) Well, uh, that's it. I mean, that money's got to get paid back. There's interest on that money. I mean, it's it's nice. You can spend your way out. You can't spend your way out of debt, but you can certainly spend your way into bankruptcy. And it's like you don't see it right now. But, you know, I can tell you from from law, bankruptcy happens slowly then all at once. And uh, look, I, and I hope we're not going there, but you got to have a government that's going to say, yeah, we've got to get the deficit under control. We've got to let people get back to work. But the problem is the same government has worked everyone into such a panic frenzy. They don't feel comfortable going to work, even if they're vaccinated, not knowing if their colleague is vaccinated. I mean, this is, this is, the, the, this is the mental uh, crippling that the government has done where people are even afraid to go back and be functional, uh, productive members of society in the way we were before because of this irrational fear that they're going, even if they're double vaccinated, they're going to contract the virus from an unvaccinated and then their statistics are still what they were before, depending on your demographics. So they're, they're creating a problem that's going to snowball into something that's, that could get out of control if it's not already out of control, which makes uh, you know, meaningful opposition voices all the more important at this point in time. Very important. Yeah, you guys, it's very important. I think that we have some issues with the central bank um, and how they're going to be doing the money management and how that affects country leadership, because I think they can hold some, some pretty strong motivation of, of, over a leader. And so you have to be pretty smart in the money area to be able to handle that and protect your country and i'm not sure um you know because it all the whole davos crowd and what they're talking about you know every world leader goes and talks there and every world leader is involved in that and those are the people behind the global reset so how are you going to manage that situation so that you can protect canadians um, and is there a way to have to can you still have the same status quo with these central banks and um, be able to um, turn this freedom situation around for Canadians. You know, I mean, in the past, maybe we did, but uh, can you, do you have to be able, do you have to essentially divorce or can you have a marriage with these central banks and say, hey, wait a minute, we'll work with you, but you got to respect our sovereignty and our rights to freedom and liberty and our God-given rights. Well, I, I mean, I don't know what the answer to that question is, but I'll just say becoming uh, regaining national uh, independence through manufacturing, through uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, that's a first start. You know, it's, it's not a question of having FU money, as we say in, in, in certain businesses. Yeah, it's just a question. Yeah. When, when you're independent, you don't need to rely on the pressure or the demands of an international community. And regaining independence has global, Perfect. especially environmental benefits. People don't understand. People don't understand the basics of, of these freight liners that are importing goods from one country to the next. One of those freight liner boats, uh, you know, between certain estimates, can, emits as much as 15 million to 50 million vehicles. If you gain uh, manufacturing independence back home, you save the environment. You also become. You don't become reliant on the pressure of these international organizations. I. I don't venture into the World Bank. It's that's more complicated than I again feel comfortable uh, expressing an opinion on. But the, you know some common sense aspects of this. If you're independent, if you have healthy local business, local manufacturing, you have a healthy tourist industry. You are bringing money into your country. You can be less reliant on borrowing and spending in order to remain uh, in order to exist. But the problem is the government's now. You don't have tourism dollars coming in because they shut the borders. You don't have manufacturing dollars coming in because you've outsourced our manufacturing through these carbon taxes, through the power score, through the pretext of the climate panic. You've basically made Canadians make decisions which are illogical, unproductive, and ultimately destructive to the very cause they think they're protecting. That's absolutely right. And you, you have to say, look, here, we will work with you and we will, we realize the power that you have, but we will not, we have a line in the sand you will not take our freedoms away and our God-given rights. And just because it's not written on a piece of paper that they're God-given rights does not mean that they're not God-given rights. Well, the pe- people will appreciate how important those rights were when, when they thought the government would stop here and the government just starts from here now. Like, every next layer is not the limit that the government set before it becomes the new starting point going forward. 
so now how do people support your cause they they have to you got two days here guys to yeah, get wait, this act in here we don't need donations anymore we got all my i got my billboards up uh, in my district the party's doing well spread the word and just make sure people get out there and vote it's um i say get out there and vote for the ppc uh, more specifically because like this is everybody says every election is the most important election in history in I, I'm I'm thoroughly convinced in Canada this is the most important election in the history of our country because, you know, if it's a if it's a liberal majority I don't think it's going to be it's going to be the end of every of of, of Canada as we knew it we're going to end up looking like Australia sooner than later we're going to continue implementing tactics that they're using in China uh, sooner than later if it's a if it's a minority I think Trudeau gets booted. Uh, and then at the very least, depending on the size of the PPC, there may be some negotiations that can happen to form a coalition. But bottom line, we need to get PPC voices in the House because they are the only opposition, real opposition, logical opposition, and principled politicians, political party out there. You know, when, when you have politicians like Aaron O'Toole, who flip-flop on very, very important issues like the vaccine passports, when you... and. and Carbon taxes. I mean, the, the, the conservatives have flip-flopped on the most important issues. Trudeau has just been dishonest on those issues. Uh, when there is nobody left to fight for those very principled issues, to voice an opposition to it, it's going to be exponential downfall. In, in my cynical of view, but I don't think we're going to get. I don't think we're going to get there because I think people are going to show up. They are going to vote for PPC, and there will be a turning of the tide because people are going to see there's a meaningful portion of the population that think enough is enough, and we've gotten there. Excellent. Thank you so much for being with me today. I, I learned something and I, I truly hope Canadians get out there and vote. Thank you very much for having me. I hope you didn't hear too much screaming upstairs. I heard some kids screaming loud, but I don't know if the mic picks up on it. But thank you very much for having me and thank you for letting me get uh, the message out there.